Okay, well, again, thank you for all the guys that planned that event. It was fun to watch. Um, I hope you guys are able to kind of, you know, this is our way to kind of do some fellowship time and just have fun. And I'm sure you guys, uh, again, just by watching you guys, some of you guys seem like you had a lot of fun. Others, James, was really angry, it <laughs> seemed. <laughs> I'm just kidding, James. No, we love you. The worship leader, smashing things. Okay. If you have your Bible, please open the third, John. This is our last of our little series here. I'm aware of the time that we have. I'm sure all of you guys are exhausted from all of that. Um, so I'm going to do my best to try to end in an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, we'll see. Okay. Uh, before we start, let's open our time in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for allowing us to just enjoy life with, with each other. As we uh, gather to have these fun little events and refreshments later, uh, Lord, we're just thankful that you give us life to be able to uh, be with each other. We know that this life here on the fallen world can be difficult. We're grateful for friendships. We're grateful for the fact that ultimately all, all of our friendships are centered around you. Lord, give us attentiveness now as we look through your word. And may you guide us and sanctify us through your word, Lord. In your son's precious name, amen. The Bible is a book that presumes a lot about you. When you're reading it, it's not something that especially if you just read it as from the beginning all the way to the end, you realize that this is not just a book uh, that just allows you to just do nothing. It's going to evoke some sort of response. If you read from the beginning of Genesis, it presumes, it, it's basically a, a, a verse that tells you to make a decision on how you view and understand this verse. Genesis 1-1 begins by saying that God created the heavens and the earth. And that's important because if you believe that, then verse 2 builds upon that. And as scripture continues to build from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's supposed to make you react a certain way. Either it makes you conform to the image of God, you see who this God is, it reveals to us who God is, and you're supposed to react to it, or you know that this is what the Bible has to say, and you absolutely reject it. The lukewarm Christian is not really a Christian at all, and it's something that the Bible speaks very negative about, negative towards. In fact, even the spiritual apathy, people that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but yet there's no genuine love for Christ, those are ones that God is offended by. When you read scripture, it is supposed to change you. It's, you're supposed to make a decision. Either that decision is I'm going to devote my life to the God that's revealed in the scripture, or I'm going to reject the God that's revealed in the scripture. Scripture is written so that people can act. And I think this is why when we look and try to understand all of the authors that's, that, the, that, was, that God used to pen the scripture, understanding their intent is important. And, the, and in, in particularly today, tonight, when we look at 3 John, John is the author, and he's very exact when, he's, when he writes his gospel or his epistles. For example, at the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 31 to 30, 30 to 31, says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Years later, when he writes 1 John, Again, John is very exact. He doesn't leave anything 
left into his imagination. He, he tells you exactly why he writes the things that he writes. First John chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things I've written to you who believe the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And even at the end, the last book in the entire Bible, it tells us that you need to react that all the prophecies, all the things that is about to come, all, when Jesus is going to reign, all of the horrific scenes is supposed to stir up in the heart of the reader that there is something that's going to happen if they, do, if they reject Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verse eight, 22, verse 18 says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of the life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's an invitation. He's trying to invite people to believe in this uh, Jesus that is about to come. Again, John writes with an intent. And when you think of second and third John, and throughout this entire series, that they're two halves of the same coin. Second John is about the false teacher to try to come into the church, and you have to reject him. Third John is about how you need to welcome those that are, are co-laborers of the gospel. And you remember last week, we talked about this character, Diotrephes. He's someone that is aware of scripture, but chooses to ignore it in the way that he lives. He is known as someone that is a slanderer. He is someone that is divisive. He is someone that chooses to set himself first among everyone else, and he chooses to divide the people and by even excommunicating some people out of the church. And what is fascinating about the book of 3 John is that, and really all of scripture, that even though these are written thousands of years ago, the principles then and the, and the description of human nature is exact even to today. Human nature doesn't change. Cultures may change. God's word doesn't change and human nature doesn't change. Those that call themselves Christians need to live in a, in a very unique and special way. So then you need to ask yourself this question. Am I being conformed to the image of God's word? Throughout this entire book, there's this plea that seems that John has to Gaius, like, you need to keep working, uh, keep, continue living and acting faithfully in the truth. He makes this contrast by Diotrephes, who chooses not to accept the teaching of the elders. But the Christian life must be different. At the end of this little epistle, I think we see that, that the Christian life looks different. So the first point, I'm going to spend the most of my time left <laughs> in this first point. That is that the Christian life is a life that requires all of us to model ourselves after other saints. The Christian life models after other saints. Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. This is the fourth time that John calls Gaius beloved. He's instructing him here. And if you were to divide this book, every time you use the beloved, you can say that this is a different point. And then I think here he's telling and encouraging Gaius, do not imitate those that are evil. And I do think in the context here, he's intentionally talking about Gaius. He's making this contrast between what Diotrephes is like versus this other character named Demetrius we'll see in verse 12. He knows that Gaius is probably discouraged by Diotrephes kicking him out or slandering the elders, and he just feels this, waiting, this weightiness to it. He doesn't know who to trust. 
And John's telling him, do not imitate what is evil. Part of the Christian life is a life of imitation. We in this church love to talk about discipleship, but do you understand part of what that discipleship looks like is imitation? You look at those in your life, and they influence you in a positive way that makes you look more like Jesus Christ. People see you follow Christ, and you realize that, hey, I want to follow, I want to be more like Christ. So I find all other people who's been in the faith longer, and I want to imitate those people as well. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, and uh, for sake of time, I'll just summarize. He, he tells a lot of people to imitate me like how I imitate Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.17, Paul says the same thing about how you need to imitate those that choose to follow Jesus Christ. Or Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 and Ephesians 5.1 about how we need to imitate Jesus Christ himself. The point of all of these things is this, is that the life of the Christian involves us imitating those that are in the faith, and especially those that are more mature in the faith. Even, the, even Hebrews 11 is in our scriptures to tell us that there are characters in the Bible that we can learn to emulate. And John is trying to get guys to not be misled by those who are not godly in the church. There is an implication that in this, that there is someone, there's some people that claim to be following the truth, but seem to be doing something that are evil. Understand that when we talk about good, we're using biblical terms. The world can do a lot of good things, and they could seem like moral people, but Christianity is beyond that. It's not the superficial following those that are do good things, but we follow a person named Jesus Christ. We have a new nature, and we seek to emulate our lives after him. In my life, I have a whole group of people that I've looked up to. From the moment I became a believer all the way till now, there have always been people that I've, I've modeled and, and imitated. I mean, some of, some of the elders, actually all of the elders here at this church are my role models. I see each of them in different light and different contexts, and they have different strengths and weaknesses. And when I see their strength, it is, is amazing. Like when I think about when I think about someone like Dale, our elder, he's always so gracious. Even when I make a mistake, he would just be like, oh, it's fine. I just ask for forgiveness. He just moves on. At the bottom of his email, every time you, if you read his email, he'll say, there's always hope. There's always hope. And I think about even someone like Pastor Roger. And the way that he counsels people is way more precise than I am. I'm like, I just blast the thing. He's like, no, here's a, he's, like, he's like a surgeon. He knows exactly how to ask the right questions and how to prick at the heart so that people can share what's really going on inside. And I see these elders. I see all of them. And, I, and there's different things I learn and glean from them. All of us need to emulate those that are faithful. Find godly examples in your life. Look for them. Notice it says, beloved, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. Uh, you have to understand that imitate here isn't saying pretend. I think we think that. The word imitate is the word for mimic. And I think sometimes when we look at the word imitate, we think of like a false Christianity, which isn't, isn't accurate here. I mean, yeah, imitate, we, we think of that, but what is the, the, imitating isn't so much pretending, because that's what a moralist person would do. A Pharisee is someone that imitates, like, and not imitate, but that pretends. He pretends to be something he's not. When we think of this word, there's, in your mind, you have to think of not in terms of moralistic time of outward change, but rather is sanctification. You're supposed to be different because you strive to want to be more like Christ. A moralist is someone that seeks to change himself or herself by their own strength. In fact, a moralist is, try, is someone trying to pretend to be something that they are not. 
They're not a Christian, but they know how to act like one. But a true believer, they seek to be more like Christ, and that's called sanctification. They try to restrain, a moralist is someone that tries to restrain their sin or seemingly uh, restrain their sin with behavior modifications. And oftentimes, moralists are people that are just adjusting their behavior so that the people, the surroundings will be, will accept them. This is why a moralist doesn't understand grace. We think about a moralist in the church, they have no concept of what graciousness is because they never experienced it themselves. If you think about a church, a moralist in the church is always offended by things that God is not offended by. He's not offended by the things that God is offended by. He's a, he's, it's almost like everything is backwards. He knows how to do all these external things that God is not bothered by, but he is really bothered by it. But yet the things that offends the Lord, he's generally pretty passive about it. This is what Diotrephes was like. He knows what is expected of him as a leader. He knows that hospitality is one of those things. But he chooses to reject it because those are things that God expects of him. But he has other external morals that he believes is right. I mean, even in the history of this church, I remember in Adult 3 when we, when we were teaching through church history, our, our elder Dale shared about how the, his, the, the early days of this church, there were people that were fundamentalists, but not in the good way. Not just, not, they weren't just holding on to certain doctrines, but they held on to certain behaviors. They would say things like, if you go to CBM camp, you're not allowed to wear T-shirts and shorts. You have to wear, like, dress pants and, and collared shirts. And, pe- and then they only stop because students are fainting and passing out because of the heat. Then they start loosening things up. You know, they start building these type of external things and, and judge a person based on those things. That's what a moralist person will do. And it's because they don't understand God's grace in their life. They don't know how to be gracious to other people. What offends them more than things like sin and idolatry is essentially them not getting their way. And this is, again, in contrast to Diotrephes here because he did not get his way and John is going to oppose him to his face. So how do you know if you are a moralist? Are you driven by your love of God or your love of change? Because that's what a moralist likes to do. They love to impose things onto people for the sake of change, but not because for the sake of God's glory. Do you seek to want to, do you seek to have things your way, or do you want other people to do things God's way? The Christian, however, are called to sanctification. Moralism is one side, but the other side is sanctification. When it says, imitate what is, uh, do not imitate what is evil, imitate what is good, you're trying to be someone that you really are. A moralism or a person that's a Pharisee, he's trying to be something that he's not. But a person that is truly saved, that truly has a new life in Christ, has a new birth, they're becoming who they really are on the inside. Because God has changed their heart. They have a desire to grow in Christ's likeness. That's the difference between the two. And John is telling guys to do that. Find those who strive to be like Christ and continue to follow those people, imitate those people that do good. Because that's what we're called to be. Christians are called to a life of sanctification. Part of the means of grace in our life is that God gives us role models to follow, not for the sake of making this external thing, but because we crave to be like Christ. And we see that in other people that are more mature in the faith, and we want to be like that, not because of the sake of the individual, but because of who that individual is following, mainly Jesus Christ. Notice at the end of verse, the one who does evil has not seen God. This is not something new that John has said in 1 John 4, 12. John says the same thing. But what does it mean here when someone has not seen God? What is John trying to refer to? He's basically explaining that there's, there are people in the church 
who have not experienced that grace of God, who do not know and have a right relationship with him. Do not imitate those type of people who have not known the goodness and kindness of the Lord. There are people who do not have saving faith, even in the context of the church. Does that mean that there are people that can call themselves Christians and can even do all these Christian things in the church and not be saved? It is possible. I think that's what's going on here with Diotrephes. I think when you look at John and he's like thinking about Diotrephes, I don't think he sees them as a lost cause. I think he really cares and genuinely loves this person. and He wants to correct this person for the sake of his own soul. This is a moral test. He repeats this idea from 1 John all the way through this epistle, that if you truly have a new birth and, there should, and if you are a believer, then there should be fruit in your life. Most people in the church will not overtly promote sin. We get that. But there are subtle ways in which people uh, claim to be Christians and make compromises. And oftentimes, sometimes people imitate those things as well. And that's very dangerous. If you understand that as a Christian, even though you may not be aware of it, people are imitating your faith as well. Yes, we're supposed to look to other people that are mature in the faith, but there's bound to be someone who isn't as mature in the faith as you that is looking to you. And all of the subtle sins that you allow in your life, all these small compromises that you make, it gives justification for the immature believer to see that and say, hey, that's okay. This person lies. Why can't I lie? He called himself a Christian. I could do just what he's doing. Well, this person is not faithful with his work. He's lazy. He called himself a believer. We go to the same church. Yeah, I, I, could, I could roll with that. I could imitate that. It's a very, very subtle thing. So when you think about discipleship in the context of the church, know that it goes both ways. Yes, there are those people that you need to pursue, but there are other people that are watching you as well. And whatever compromises that you make in your life, people will see that, and they will imitate it. They will pick up on your, pref your preferences and your convic convictions just simply being around you. Following Christ in the church will inevitably, inevitably have other people to follow you. Just the reality of all discipleship. And there's a call for us not just to seek other people that are holy in the faith and more mature in the faith, but it's also a call for self-reflection of ourselves. We need to be holy for God is holy. And we have models in, our, in the church, but also understand that you are a model as well. There's bound to be someone that's younger in the faith that's looking to justify their sin. They're going to look at you and they'll say, that's fine, I could do that sin as well. Don't be someone that acts in evil because you might realize that people might follow you in a way that you don't want. Verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, you know that our testimony is true. John gives an example of what is someone that is good, and this is this person, Demetrius. He is someone that, it's, uh, it's implied just in this letter that this letter was probably given to Demetrius to give to Gaius or the people in the church as a way to validate that he is a believer that he knows the Apostle John, he's sent to do the work of the gospel. And he's reading this, and Gaius is reading this, and he's, he's encouraged by it. He knows that this person, Demetrius, has not just the Apostle John, but it seems it's from everyone. So that means that he's going to be blessed by this individual if he just takes him in. It, it says, and it says here, and from truth itself, Demetrius is someone that is loyal to the truth. He is like Gaius in many ways. Right, Gaius was known as someone who was faithful to God's word, to the truth, and he's saying, this guy and you have the same, you guys, are, you guys have a kindred spirit. Demetrius' life matches up with the truth. And like Diotrephes, who is essentially a hypocrite, Demetrius is a faithful saint, and the truth that he professes matches what the, what the life he claims. 
and says that we add our witnesses and you know our witnesses true. John is saying that look, the things that we've said, even though Diotrephes rejects it, you know that what we say about this guy is, uh, is true. And you can trust John. What a great example of faithful living. He is known for all of the good, these good things. So he's received uh, a good reputation from everyone. Now what about you? Can this be said about you? When we think about imitating those in the faith, sometimes the reason why people don't want to imitate you or don't want to disciple you or don't want to follow you in the faith is because you do have a terrible testimony. And that's something that we need to consider. If you ever wonder why people are kind of prone to keep their distance from you, it can be because they see in your life something that doesn't match up. You call yourself a Christian, yet you live a certain way, and yet you don't become this aroma that's supposed to be pleasing to people, to draw people to Christ. Rather, you become this stench because you claim to be a Christian, but you're drawing people away from the truth. Do you have a good testimony from everyone? This includes those that are believers and non-believers. I think even this person, Demetrius, he must be elder qualified. He's above reproach. He lives in such a way that everyone that he's encountered can say definitively, this guy is a legitimate Christian. I remember my old church, I went with a fellow elder to go buy a car. Uh, it was like a used car for our missionaries. And we were sitting at the lot, and we, you know, he, was, he was asking about some people in our church. And one guy, name came up, and the guy, the dealer, the, guy, the car dealer, the guy that was trying to sell the car, was like, oh, I know that person. He's very interesting. And it's like, what does that mean? Like, what, what makes him so interesting? It's like, and it, it was nothing inherently evil. Like, he wasn't doing anything wrong on the surface. But the way that he conducted himself wasn't like, oh, yeah, this guy was, he clearly loved Jesus Christ. It was interesting because he knows us from the church. He's like, oh, this guy goes to your church. He's interesting. What is the thing, if you think about the people in your life, what would they say about you? Is it interesting or is it, he or she really represents Christ. I don't, I don't like that they represent Christ, but at least I can say definitively that this person is a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's the first one. The Christian life is filled with people that model themselves after other Christians. Our second point, the Christians love to gather with one another. The, the, the gathering of the saints, our second point. Verse 13, I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and will speak face to face. Now, this is, I thought it was reaching this epilogue, and depending on who's reading this, it can be an encouragement or a threat. I think for someone like Gaius, it's an encouragement. He knows that John is going to come. He's going to correct everything. All the confusion that Diotrephes uh, created is going to be dealt with. But if you were Diotrephes, you'll see that as a threat because he knows that John is coming for him. And he has so many things to write, and I, and I can only imagine what those things are like. But yet he wants to meet them. He wants to see them face to face. And he says, but I hope to see you shortly and we'll speak to you face. He doesn't, there's, there's things that he wants to write. And there's a reason why he doesn't want to write more is because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. I don't know how many conflicts have, have caused in this world because of the advent of Facebook and Twitter and all social media and people are typing things. I remember in high school, oh, I feel so old, like AIM, do you guys know what that is? It's like basically Facebook Messenger for high schoolers in the 2000s. That's like the, that's actually exactly what it is. Nothing new is under the sun, you know, you know that, right? This is something that's already existed before. So many high school dramas started because they misunderstood what that message was. Like, oh, did they want to go with me to the prom? Like, no, 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 not you. I was just saying something. It's all these little weird 
you know, signals and emojis or whatever. People can misunderstand and, and misinterpret what you mean. So when John's saying that, I have many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. He's saying that there's something that he wants to tell them, and he wants to be very clear about what he wants to say. He doesn't want to hold back. And I think, again, if you are someone like Gaius, it's probably something, you'll hear something good. But if you're Diotrephes, that's a horrible thing. But you notice that he said he really wants to see them shortly. He wants to be with them face to face. I remember when the beginning of COVID, how many of us and the elders and just talking with people, just they would say oh, how much I, I took for granted the body of Christ, how I wish I can just have that small group or be able to go on Friday and Sunday, how I wish I can do all of that again, how I wish I can sing and hear God's word and fellowship and pray with each other. And then when things opened up, what happened? Suddenly, that urge to return kind of faded away, right? There was always this now excuse of, oh, I have something else I have to do. I do I have, there's some other place I need to go to. There's something always going on that makes us not desire the fellowship of the saints. The Christian life is a life that has to be face-to-face. Now, I'm not going against those that are listening online. I understand there are circumstances and there are situations in which you might not be able to come to church, but your desire is to always want to be with the people, and at some point you will act on it. John said he hopes to see them shortly. He will speak with them face to face. He wants to be with them. He wants to, I mean, he wants to confront Diotrephes, as he said earlier in verse 10. And I think, again, this is what Matthew 18 talks about. Like when someone sins against you, you go. And I think John is the one that's, uh, that was sinned against. So he's going to confront this person face to face. Again, it's not just fellowship, but there is a sense in which when you're confronting sin, it has to be face to face. There are times or as difficult and awkward as it can be, you need to talk to people. As hard as it is, you need to be with them face to face. I mean, Paul, when he saw Peter fall into sin because he kind of compromised with him and favored the Jews over their Gentiles, it says that he confronted Peter to his face. I think when us as Christians, we don't live up to that. When there's conflict in the church, we often tell everyone else face to face except the person that, is, that needs to hear this. If you love this individual, if they're in sin, confront them. Not because you like conflict, not because you like to have these uncomfortable conversations, but because you love them, you see their blind spots, and you want to confront them out of love so that they can repent. The Christian life is meant to be with each other in the physical space. Not only are Christians supposed to model other Christians or in us to be around with other Christians, but the Christian life is filled with encouragement. Our third point is the encouragement of the saints. Give me like 10 more minutes. John, in, the la- in verse 15, says, Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. These are almost like three different ways of saying goodbye in a very kind and loving way. Uh, in the remaining time, he says, Peace be with you. This is similar to the way Paul writes. This is, I mean, just understand when Gaius is reading this, he's probably distressed. Knowing what's going on with the church, how it seemed like Diotrephes was splitting everyone apart. People are being church disciplined out. He is discouraged, and John's telling, telling him, peace be to you. He's trying to give him peace, like shalom, peace. He's just letting him know and hoping that Gaius will find peace in this letter. Again, he knows what's going on. He's trying to encourage his friend. 
And notice John writes, the friends greet you. There's not, it's not just John himself, but there's a whole group of people that is aware of this. And I'm sure they're praying for Gaius and the church there. And they are writing. And maybe because of space, John just writes, the friends greet you. Instead of writing every single one of them by name, he's saying, just the friends. You know who I'm with. All of these people greet you. And again, that's supposed to encourage Gaius to know that he is not alone. And even though there's a distance between John and these friends, that there are people that cares about him. We are aware of the phrase vocal minority. And oftentimes, a vocal minority in every context seems to be the loudest. And they're the ones that we seem to fixate on. They're ones that, you know, that criticize us, that, that seem to be the thorn in the flesh. You know, they, they channel the spirit of, of Job's friends. They believe that their spiritual gift of, is discouragement. They believe these individuals that are actually the vocal minority but understand that in the context of a larger church, not just here, but wherever you are, there are a lot more people that are on your side. There are a lot more people praying for you. There are a lot more friends that really care about you. Vocal minorities will always exist in every church. But understand that there are a lot more people that truly cares and loves you. Don't be discouraged by them. Don't be moved by them. They uh, your, these friends that are all around you, they may be silent, but they are your true friends. You have more people that are on your side than against you. And it says, and John ends this little line here, greet the friends by name. John ends his letter with a greeting to those in the church. He, obviously because of limitation, can't greet those individuals and write them down. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. But he just wants John to pass on the letter, almost like what he said, like greet all the people that I'm with, says hello to you, can you say hi to all the other people that you're with? And again, you can just see that there's a special bond that John has with guys and the people in the church that are faithful. There's something unique um, to be known by them. And I think we understand that. Uh, I know personally when I first came, and even now at times I struggle with names. I have to try to come up with mnemonic devices for each of you so I can remember your name. Uh, and I think part of that is because recognizing and remembering people's names show that you care. And he's telling Gaius, hey, you know, you know all the people that I know. They know me. Can you please greet each and every single one of them? Know that I'm thinking about them and know that I'm praying for them as well. And that I'm coming. And I, we, and I look forward to a time where we can fellowship and encourage each other. If you look at all these three little phrases in verse 15, it's saturated with love. John is known as the apostle of love because of how much he cares about the people that God has entrusted him in his life. And, the, and there's the closeness that John has with his people. And I would imagine guys reading this would be encouraged by the apostle John, knowing that there are those, even though it seems like it's like very dreary, that he has allies all over. And they're coming, they're praying for him. There is an anticipation to gather with the saints, to encourage them. And I just ask yourself this. When the, the, this last week, were there any brothers and sisters in the faith that I had an opportunity just to encourage them? It doesn't have to be you know, bombastic and like over the top, just letting them know that you are praying for them. Even something as simple as peace to you, you know, that you're thinking about them. Be known as an encourager because our, belie our believer, I mean our savior is as someone that encourages. He's there for those that are weak. He cares for those that are disheart disheartened. 
I hope that that's you as well. The Christian life looks radically different is because we know Jesus Christ. Whenever you read the scriptures, whenever you engage God's word, it's supposed to cause you to act. You're supposed to live in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord. That means that you learn to imitate those in the faith, that you seek to follow those that are mature in the faith so you could be more like Jesus Christ. It means that you learn to gather and be with one another and live life together. It's something that all of us strive to do, and I know we're all busy, but you prioritize, first and foremost, your relationship with the Lord, and then you prioritize the relationship with the body. I'm not being legalistic. I'm just saying that there should always be a desire in your life to be with other believers. And lastly, we should be a people that encourages, especially, I mean, this is the only time where I say technology. We can emulate the apostle here. You, you know, when you send a text message, that's close to what the apostles are writing. I mean, you said use pen and ink, so maybe, you know, buy a fountain pen or something. I'm kidding. Um, but understand that there has to be some encouragement in the life of the Christian. You love other people, so you want to encourage them. Because life can be discouraging. Ministry can be hard. Life can be hard. And people need encouragement. Think of ways in which you can encourage one another in the faith this week. This short epistle shows us the norm of the Christian life. And there are those that are seeking to live in a way that's obedient to the Lord, and that's Gaius and Demetrius. And there are those who refuse to live according to Scripture and to God's Word. And that's someone that we find in Diotrephes. And I pray that you tonight that are listening will live in a way that's faithful according to the Word of the living God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, thank you for every single word that you've allowed for us to know that's written in Scripture. We know that there are mysteries in the world that we'll not understand, and there are secret things that belong to you, but the word of the living God is given to us so that we can know you, so that we can learn to love you, so we can see who you are and to, and to, and to worship you faithfully. Lord, give us godly role models. Give us, we, we ask that something that we've always asked like discipleship and mentorships in the church. Give us those mentors and give us a desire to all seek those people out and also be a mentor ourselves, understanding that we know that people are watching and the Christian life is to be observed because we're called to be a light and salt in the world. And Lord, I also pray um, that we learn to gather in a way that isn't just because of, so, uh, because of social reasons, that the church is more meaningful because of the relationships that we have in you. And lastly, Lord, help us uh, be an encourager. We know that in our life, in this fallen world, it's so easy to try to tear down those around us, to be critical and to be offensive with our words. But allow us to be, uh, use our words in a way that is, that's honoring to you. Guard our lips. Allow us to speak the right things at the appropriate time so that we can encourage and build up the saints' word. Thank you for this time that we have tonight, and allow us to enjoy the fellowship we'll have uh, soon. In your son's precious name.